0: Would you please stand and open your Bibles and and join us, please, for our morning scripture? Uh, Today we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. So we're on Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. And it says... And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on this day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, again. As we uh, as we take a look at the story that we're going to read today, this narrative, I want to urge you to keep in mind that passage from Isaiah. Maybe even keep a finger there, a bookmark, or something, in Isaiah chapter twenty-five, because that's going to be an important uh, piece to the puzzle we're trying to put together this morning. But if you would allow for me to, I'd like to read our text from this morning, which is in Matthew chapter 25, and I'd ask you, if you have your Bible, to turn there with me. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 15. We're not to 25 yet. Uh, Chapter 15. We didn't skip ahead. Um, Chapter 15 of Matthew, uh, starting at verse 29. Matthew's the first book of the Old Testament, or the New Testament, and um, towards the back third of the Bible, if you're not familiar. There are Bibles in your pews. Starting at verse 29 of Matthew chapter 15. It says Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread to, for such a, uh, in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Does this story sound familiar at all? Have you heard this before? And not just because you've read the Bible since you were a kid, but didn't DJ just preach on this story like a few weeks ago? And here we are again reading the same story. Now, I'm I'm pretty convinced that in every family or in every friend group you know somebody. You might be related to them, or maybe they're a good friend who every time uh, you get together, they tell the same doggone story, right? And it's like, okay, Uncle Marv, okay, we've got to hear that story again kind of thing. You know the person? You know who I'm talking about? If you don't know who it is, it's probably you. Okay, so get a new story. Now, this is, on- this is honestly like the preacher's bane. You preach week in and week out, most-, most Sundays of the year. And I've got like three interesting stories out of my life. And I have to recycle them over and over and over again. I kind of forget who I tell what story to. We can be like that. And and so you read this in Matthew and you're thinking, hold on, didn't Jesus just feed 5,000 people like in the chapter right before this? Is Matthew forgetful? Did he forget that he'd already told this story? Nearly identical. I mean, literally 46 verses ago, he just told a story almost identical to this. Now, you you may have guessed it already, but I don't think... Matthew has made a mistake here. He's too careful, he's too precise a writer to make that kind of mistake. And if you, as I do, believe that God himself has inspired this book, if he's inspired this gospel, if he was speaking through the writer Matthew, then we should start with the assumption that these two stories are told in such close proximity on purpose. The question is, what's what's the purpose that Matthew has? What are we to see and learn and understand about Jesus here? What is Jesus doing? What what's significant about his mission, and what are the similarities and differences in these stories in the context of the entire book of Matthew, and how does that convey meaning to us that that isn't just head knowledge, you know, some interesting facts about why Jesus might put these two stories or Matthew might put these two stories close together, but how does this understanding of these stories then? not just inform us but transform us how can we be changed because of what jesus is doing here and how matthew is telling the story now if you've been paying attention through through the book of matthew you realize that that the author, Matthew, is all about setting up these patterns. Over and over again, you see these patterns. And if you look for repetitions of different themes and ideas throughout the book of Matthew, you'll start to get an idea of what he's trying to do. And there's at least four patterns in today's text that I believe will help us to understand what's going on here. So I'm going to ask you guys to work with me here. Okay, We're going to do some hard work this morning. Are you ready to get to work? Okay, so four words, four patterns, four themes. They all start with M. You're welcome. Ministry, manna, mountains, what? Mountains? And mission, okay? And I'll get to those. We'll put them up there in just a minute. Ministry, manna, mountains, and mission. And the first of these patterns is ministry or Jesus' compassion on the crowds. Now, one of the predominant patterns in Matthew's gospel is a series of ministry summaries where, where Matthew just kind of summarizes in general terms the ministry that Jesus is doing. So turn with me. We're going to go all the way back to chapter 4 of Matthew, and I ask you to follow along with me here as we go through. I'm not going to put them up on the screen. You're going to have to follow along. Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 23. This is the first ministry summary that we see in the book of Matthew, after Jesus begins his ministry, and it starts this way. Starting verse 23. He went through all Galilee, that's Jesus, went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Okay, Think of geography here. If you know the area, Syria is not in Israel. It's a larger area. So throughout all Syria... And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And I want you to notice two things in this summary. First, we have Jesus' powerful ministry. it's a ministry of preaching, it's a ministry of healing, it's a ministry of exorcism. So there's powerful ministry. But then second, we have this picture of great crowds gathering around Jesus. And these crowds aren't restricted to just the Jews only. We've got people from Syria and the the Decapolis, which are both Gentile regions, coming to Jesus to hear from him and to be healed by him. Now the next ministry summary, you're going to go to your right, just a few chapters, to chapter 9. Of Matthew starting in verse 35. So there's a ministry summary. Then we have a bunch of stories and then Matthew gives us another summary of Jesus's ministry in chapter 9 verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of kingdom of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. We've heard this before. When he saw the crowds he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So again, two key things show up. Powerful ministry of preaching and healing. And again, there are great crowds around Jesus. But then Matthew adds an important element here. And he adds that Jesus had compassion for them. I love that word compassion. The Greek word for compassion is an anatomical word. It literally means guts or intestines. The Greek word I love is one of my favorites, splanknon. Doesn't that sound like the gut, the guts? And there's a verb, splanknizomai, which means he was compassionate, or his, his guts were going out to these people. So get, I mean, get that. When you feel compassion for somebody, where does it come from? Does it come from your head? We might say it comes from the heart, but it really comes from the guts, doesn't it? And here's Jesus having compassion on these people, saying that Jesus felt his love and pity for those needy people, and he felt it in his gut. And what instigated, what instigated Jesus' compassion? It was that he saw that these people were like sheep without a shepherd. What happens when you take sheep out in the middle of the woods and you leave them without a shepherd? They get scattered, they're vulnerable, they get eaten. You don't have very many sheep for very long when they don't have a shepherd. So pay attention to this imagery especially because it will come up again. Now, moving on, there are at least two more ministry summaries, and both are connected with the two stories of Jesus feeding multitudes. One is in chapter 14, so let's flip over there now, and one is in chapter 15 that we just read. So chapter 14, Matthew, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat. And what did he just hear? He just heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod. He heard this. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So he wanted to go off and be by himself because he just heard this tragic, um, sad news. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. So there's those elements again. We've got a powerful ministry of healing. We have a large crowd. And we have Jesus' compassion all together. Now all of, these, of, all of these elements show up again in today's story. Chapter 15, which I just read. We have great crowds, which are actually mentioned seven seven times. In verse 30, 31, 32, 33, 35, 36, 39. Seven times the crowds are mentioned in this story. There's a powerful healing ministry And that healing ministry actually induces wonder in the crowds and praise. They praise and worship the God of Israel, we see in verses 30 and 31. And perhaps most importantly, in verse 32, we see again Jesus' guts, his intestines, his compassion, verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. All right. So what is the point of all that? What is the the point of these ministry summaries? What is the point of the crowds and the ministry and the compassion? Well, here's what I think. I think what, what Matthew is doing throughout this gospel is he's painting a picture of Jesus the Messiah. The promised, from the Old Testament, the promised good shepherd of Israel, who has deep pity and compassion on the people, and that leads him to bring kingdom blessings. And he doesn't just put his kingdom blessings on a few people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders, the the elite people. He doesn't just put his blessing on them. He doesn't just give his blessing to his 12 disciples and their families. He shares his kingdom blessing with not just a few people, but with great crowds of people. Jesus' blessing is abundant. The blessing of the Messiah is abundance, which we're going to see here in the next pattern that I see in this passage, which is a pattern of manna or abundant provision. So let me read for you again from verse 33. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over, And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. Now, as we compare this story to the feeding of the 5,000, which is in chapter 14, there are some key differences that that should uh, raise our awareness or get our antennas going a little bit. And the first is that in this story, Jesus is the one who initiates the conversation. And if you look back in chapter 14 at the feeding, the disciples are the one who come to Jesus and initiate this conversation about feeding these people. Here we have 5,000 plus people, and they come to him, and what do they say? They don't say, Jesus, feed these people. They say, Jesus, send them away. Send them away because they forgot their lunch, and we can't feed them. Send them away. So they haven't even considered in chapter 14 the possibility that Jesus would provide a feast in such abundance that he would feed over 5000 people their plan was to send the people away send them away let them go get their food now does that sound familiar where else do we see the disciples sending people away okay the children right the children come but that's not even Matthew, that's in Matthew 19 so we haven't got there yet can't use that one so they don't just yeah Preview of coming attractions, the disciples still don't get it for four chapters later. Um, that's one of them. He sends the children away. But there's one really close by Matt actually talked about it last week. There's a Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus, and what do the disciples do after they start they're pestering him, and pestering, she's pestering them, pestering them, asking Jesus to heal her daughter. And what do the disciples do to Jesus? They beg him to send her away there's a pattern here, okay, send her away, verse 23, send her away for she is crying out after us. So it it never crossed their minds that Jesus would or could feed the crowds. It apparently didn't cross their mind that Jesus would help one of Israel's enemies, that, that he would even consider giving her the crumbs from the table that she was asking for. And so the disciples here are completely underselling both Jesus' compassion and his mission. They don't get it. They don't get his heart, his his guts, his compassion for these people, and they're not understanding his mission. And I ask ourselves this question. I ask myself this question this morning. How often do we do that? How often do you or I sell Jesus short? How often do we refuse to believe that he not only wants to meet people's needs, But he actually intends to meet their needs, and often through you and through me. Here's the thing. When he puts people right in front of us, sometimes we're too busy. We're too distracted. We're too blind. And we're too afraid. And so we ignore them. At best, we might say, hey, Jesus, could you please get this person away from me? Would you send them away so I don't have to deal with them? Because I can't do it. So we ignore them. We, we try to get Jesus to send them away. And too often, what happens when we do that is we end up missing the miracle. We end up missing the miracle instead of embracing it. Oh, that we would see Jesus' heart of compassion, which is a heart to provide abundantly for his sheep. He wants to provide abundantly for his sheep. So here's what happens in the story, though. The disciples, we're back in chapter 15 now, the disciples hear Jesus' desire to feed another large crowd, right? They've already, he's already fed one, and now he desires to feed another. And, and instead, of, instead of saying, you know what, you got this, Jesus, We just saw you do this like a minute ago. Do it again. Yes. Was that their response? No. They didn't even come and say, well, are you sure, Jesus? Are you sure that you want to do this? Are you sure that you, you should do this? Now, they don't doubt Jesus' ability. In fact, what they do here is that they turn prideful. Because they're too busy. What they're too busy is actually focusing on themselves. Verse 33, just pay attention to this. They say essentially, how are we supposed to obtain such a large amount of bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? What's the pronoun they use? It's not you, Jesus, it's we. How are we supposed to do this? But Jesus didn't tell them to do anything, has he? He's expressed his compassion. He said, I want to feed them. He hasn't told them to do anything. He did in chapter 14. He told them to feed the crowds. But here he doesn't. And we do this to Jesus sometimes too, don't we? We're just like the disciples here. He puts a burden on your heart to do something or to love or to serve someone. He places someone in your path in real time. And your first response is to focus on why you can't do it. I can't, Jesus. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the extra means, the money. I don't have the energy. I don't have the time. Jesus, what if you're calling me to this ministry to go work with teenagers upstairs in the rising? I can't do that. They scare the crud out of me. What if I mess it up? And here's Jesus' prompt, simple response You're right. You're right. Which is why I think his next question in verse 34 is so beautiful. Here's what he said. Jesus said to them, when they say, hey, where are we going to get all this food? He looks at them and says, how many loaves do you have? Now, pay attention to this question because it's important. When God wants to do something through you, he will sometimes ask you what you bring to the table. Right? And I kind of think our answers should always be the same. Not enough. What do you bring to the table to offer to other people? Not uh, uh, Seven loaves, that's all I got. A couple fish. I mean, se- seven loaves and a few small fish for thousands of people. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. It's not going to do the job. But when God calls us to the impossible, he expects us to come to the end of ourselves. He expects us to run out of our own resources. Can you, can you think of a better place to be? Seriously, can you think of a better place to be than at the end of yourself when Jesus is asking you to do the impossible? I can't. So Jesus wasn't kidding when in John chapter 15, he said one of the most profound things I think he ever said. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. We need Jesus desperately to work through us. Only Jesus can provide manna. Only Jesus can provide food. Only Jesus can provide bread. Only Jesus can provide sustenance. Only Jesus can provide the life we need, and he provides it in abundance, no matter how little we bring to the table. That's the second pattern. The third pattern here is the pattern of on the mountain. This word mountain and really on the mountain, what we have is, is the shepherd's feast. And throughout the book of Matthew, the writer touches on, um, throughout his story, he, he touches on on geography. And in this specific instance, he touches on a very important geographical pattern. So there's, there's many places in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus goes, and they're all important. So if you see a ge- geographical note, a place note in the Gospel, pay attention. Jesus is in and around and on the Sea of Galilee a ton. That's important. He's in Capernaum. He's in Gentile regions. He's in the wilderness. All of these carry deep meaning and they embed the story with symbolic richness. So where does this story take place? Verse 29. On a mountain. In fact, if you're paying attention, this is the fourth mountain out of Seven mountains. Seven is an important number, by the way. This is the fourth. So it's like the middle mountain out of the seven mountains in Matthew uh, that play a part in the gospel. So follow along with me again. We're going to go all the way back to chapter four. So we're going to do this again real quickly. And the first mount is the mount of temptation. The mount of temptation. So Matthew chapter four, verse eight. This is the third of the devil's temptations when Jesus is in the wilderness. And it says. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. So Satan is busy tempting Jesus, trying to get him to fall from his path. And in, in very many senses, Jesus is a new and better Israel here. Who, who was all, they were always falling for temptation in the wilderness. But Jesus doesn't fall for temptation. This third temptation, Jesus or excuse me, the devil Satan offers all of the kingdoms of the world to Jesus in exchange for Jesus bowing down and worshiping him. But Jesus doesn't fall for the temptation because Jesus knows his Bible. And he knows that back in Genesis on another mountain in a garden with a tree Satan had come and tempted another man and another woman, Adam and Eve, and he had offered them all the kingdoms of the world under their power. You know what? If you take of this, you'll be like God. You can rule everything, and you can do it in your own way. You can do it in your own power, and you can get the glory. And so he deceived them into thinking that if they followed his ways, they would be their own kings. And We are paying the consequences for that today. But Jesus, who is the new and the better Adam, he will be a king who will gain his kingdom not through idolatry, not through taking shortcuts, but through sacrifice. That's the first mountain. The second mountain is just the next chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And this is called the Mount of Instruction. This is where Jesus delivered his most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mountain. Just like Moses, Jesus goes on to the mountain and he brings God, God's people, God's instruction or his Torah, his law. He interprets authoritatively the, the law, the, his instructions to his disciples and imparts it to them. So Jesus here acts like a new and a better Moses. Giving instruction to his people on how to live a life in the kingdom on the Mount of Instruction. The very next mountain is, is in chapter 14 again. So a few chapters to the right there. And this is called the mountain of prayer, the Mount of Prayer. Chapter 14, verse 23. says, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now this instance takes place directly following the feeding of 5,000 and the old testament often pictures the place of meeting with god like mount sinai on a mountain the mountain is a place where god and humanity meets which is which is why israel ancient israel would often go to the high places they weren't great places but they were the high places because they were trying to get to god and now jesus like elijah has just heard some really terrifying news some bad news Right, Elijah, you remember the story of Elijah? When he, on a mountain, confronted the prophets of Baal, and God showed up in fire and wiped out the prophets of Baal, and there was this great victory. And then Elijah heard that King Jezebel was mad at him and wanted to kill him. He heard this horrible news, and so he ran for his life. He ran to a desolate place to get off by himself, and he went to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. He went to the mountain of God to be with God, to hear from God, to pray. To get some discernment and understanding. And just like Elijah, Jesus has heard this horrible news about his cousin, his friend, his predecessor, John the Baptist, that he's been killed. And all he wants to do is go up on the mountain like Elijah and meet with his father and listen and get perspective. Jesus is the new and better Elijah on the Mount of Prayer. The fourth mountain is the one we encounter here in chapter 15 which I'll call the Mount of Feasting, verse 29. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain, and he sat down there, and great crowds came to him. And, of course, it's on this mountain that he proceeds to feed more than 4,000 people. Okay, now, so all this is super interesting, right? You're all awake, and I've really kept you um, in, in with me here. It's all interesting, but why does it matter? How, how does this, these mountains help us understand what is going on? And, and for that, we have to go, as usual with Matthew, we have to go to the Old Testament. We have to go to the Hebrew Scriptures, in particular the passages we read leading, we read reading into this sermon that Vicky read for us. So Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, where it says, On this mountain the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Where will God make a feast for his people? On a mountain. Another prophet, a little bit later, Ezekiel chapter 34 He pictures, in this passage, God as the shepherd of his people. Here's what God says in verse 13 of Ezekiel 34. I will bring them out from the peoples, I will gather them from the countries, and I will feed them. Where? On the mountains of Israel. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. And Ezekiel's really taking from the imagery of Psalm twenty three. You know Psalm twenty three. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, He makes me to lie down in green pastures, He leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. God is the good shepherd. Yahweh is the good shepherd of Israel. So every time that Matthew mentions a mountain, he's sending our minds, he's sending our imaginations back to the Old Testament to see exactly how Jesus is fulfilling all that he came to fulfill for his people. And in this instance, he's the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the good shepherd, the true and better David. And not just David, but he is Yahweh himself who provides for and protects and gives his own life for the sake of his sheep. Amen, I would say if I were you, but whatever. All right, fourth one, fourth pattern. Mission, movement toward the Gentiles. This is the last of the four patterns, mission. The fourth and final pattern that helps us to understand this story has to do with the trajectory of Jesus' mission. Now, it's not immediately obvious, but I want to try to convince you that this crowd is largely a Gentile crowd. That the people here on this mountain, these 4,000 plus people, are mostly, if not all, non-Jewish people. They're not Jews. The feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14 was mostly a Jewish crowd, if not all a Jewish crowd. And what what was being shown there by Matthew is that God, through Jesus, is abundantly providing for Israel. Now, in the feeding of the 4,000, we see God's abundant provision for the whole world. Feeding of 5,000, His provision for Israel. Feeding of 4,000, His provision for the whole world. So the trajectory of Matthew's narrative which pictures Jesus constantly and expansively pushing out the lines, constantly moving outward towards the people who are on the fringe, the outsiders, and then ultimately towards the Gentiles. And that movement takes a crucial turn here in chapter 15, particularly, again, in last week's story. There's a reason Matthew put the healing of the Canaanite woman's daughter right next to this story. So this Canaanite woman, this enemy of Israel, comes, and she's pleading, she's begging, she's on her knees asking Jesus to heal her daughter. The disciples beg him to send her away, and Jesus responds to them, and perhaps I think he's responding to them with what's in their own hearts, stating to them, hey, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But if you're paying any attention throughout this book of Matthew, you can see that that's clearly not the case. That Jesus is constantly pushing out the lines. That it's not the case that he's only come to the house of Israel. Jesus is, is, what he's doing here is he's placing the disciples along with the Pharisees. He's placing their prejudice back in their own laps to see what they'll do with it. So when Jesus says to her in verse 26 of chapter 15... He says it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And you have to know that the term dogs is a derogatory term that the Jews would use for Gentiles. When he says that to her, he's actually anticipating that this is exactly what he is about to do with over 4,000 Gentiles. He's about to give them the children's bread has the messiah come for jews only or for gentiles as well well the woman knew the answer verse 27 yes lord yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table she knew better than the pharisees she knew better than the scribes she knew better than the disciples that somehow somehow she knew the scriptures she knew better that god's promise to abraham was not just for israel it was for the entire world. And she was a living, breathing example of what you find in Matthew 12, 21, which tells us clearly that in his name, in Jesus' name, the Gentiles will hope. So she asks for crumbs, and what does she get? A feast. Okay, so Jesus, here's Jesus' missional trajectory. It's from Israel to the world, but there's another detail in this story that also gives us a clue that this is a non-Jewish crowd. You likely missed it, but look at verse 31. We're told that the crowds glorified the God of Israel. Okay, if this was a Jewish crowd, Matthew would not add that detail. He would just say they glorified God. But this is a pagan people. These are people who don't worship Yahweh. Maybe they worship Molech or Baal or Caesar or something else. And now, because of the work and the ministry and the compassion of Jesus, who are they worshiping? They're worshiping the one true God. They're worshiping the God of Israel. This is a picture of the nations coming to God through Jesus. drawing. He's drawing them all to worship the one true God. So do you see what's happening? Do you see what's happening? Jesus the Messiah is painting outside the lines again. And he's actively scandalizing the religious leaders and those who think they're on the inside by taking the children's bread, taking Israel's bread, and sharing it with the dogs, sharing it with the Gentiles, sharing it with the outsiders, sharing it with you, and sharing it with me. The Lord of the harvest is sharing Israel's manna with the Gentiles. The one who called himself the bread of life is giving himself not only for Israel, but to all the nations. And that includes us. So as we come to the table today, we actually partake of bread. We, take, we partake of the fruit of the vine. And in that, we remember that in his last meal with his disciples, Jesus took the 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 elements of the supper, the, the bread and the wine. He took the, the elements of the, the last supper and he gave them to his disciples and he said, take and eat, take and drink. This is my body, this is my blood given for you. And it's because of that bread, it's because of that, the bread of his body that we are able to come and partake and have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to Come. Come and partake. Come and partake of the bountiful, abundant meal that Jesus has bought for us, that he's provided for us, and, and accept it and, and receive it in grace and gratitude and joy. And if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, um, then I would encourage you this morning that now is the time. Now is the time to come to the Messiah. Now is the time to come to the Good Shepherd. Now is the time to come to the Bread of Life the Lord of the harvest, and give your life to him. And I'd encourage you to do that. And if, if you have any questions on that, like I'd love to chat with you. I know there's elders in the room that would, and others who'd love to chat with you. Um, there's our prayer room in the back. If you want to talk to somebody in, in quiet back there, you're welcome to head back. It's across from the bathrooms. But I'd encourage you this morning, come. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for the bread of life that you have sent us in Jesus. Jesus, we're grateful that you came and you were the true and better Moses and the true and better Elijah and the true and better Adam and the, the true and better David. You are the shepherd of the sheep. You are a good shepherd. You are the Lord of the harvest. You are the Messiah. And this morning as we come and we take of a, a symbolic meal and we take this little piece of bread and this little cup of juice and we remember the abundance Father, there's very little that we bring to the table, maybe a few loaves and some fish, and we ask that you would multiply them. God, that you would use us to go to the world on the mission that you have, because your mission wasn't just in the first century. Your mission is here in the 21st century in Prineville, Oregon. So as we take, and as we take of your abundance, and as we take in gratitude and receive your grace this morning, I pray that you would send us from these doors on your mission to this place, to this community, to these people that you've put in our lives, to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to our friends and family, and to the ends of the earth. Would you glorify yourself, and may the nations come and glorify you, the God of Israel. We pray all this in your name. Amen.